Brent Bourgeois is back, at least in the recording scene. As half of the 80s West Coast band Bourgeois Tag, the keyboardist writer had connected with Todd Rundgren to produce some great records. Then, after a move to Nashville, he released his CCM record, Come Join the Living World, his last recording since 1994. It spawned hit songs that caught the ears of many in the Nashville scene. Twenty years later, Brent Bourgeois returns with a new album, Don't Look Back, and it seems as if he's never missed a beat. The eyes of the world have descended upon you, and you feel like you have to justify every single thing that you do. But it may be time to take a different tact. Keep your eyes straight ahead and don't look back. I've got to say, take things way too hard You end up feeling all battered and scarred Before you give yourself a heart attack Just keep on moving and don't look back Oh, 
Inside Music Cast welcomes Brent Bourgeois. Hey, Brent, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Hey, Brent, uh, you've been a busy man this past uh, couple months on promoting the, the new album, but uh, I'm sure you've been asked a ton of questions, uh, the same question these days, but we're going to ask it once more just for the sake of our audience, uh, who really does want to know about you, and uh, you know, because it's, it's really been 20 years since you've been actively plugged into the music world, and uh, at, least, uh, in, in, at least in a personal recording way, but knowing all the details of, of uh, where you are now and where you live left, in a way, the, the business uh, 20 years ago. Fill us in a little bit as to what, uh, how, how does it feel, first of all, to be back in, in the saddle again? Well, uh, as far as recording my own material, it has been 20 years. I did, I've done production and, and all kinds of other things since, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I hadn't, I mean, if you're, if you're taking from 1994, last time I made a record to now, I mean, every single thing is different. Right. There was no internet, or I think Netscape had its first browser then. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, certainly we weren't thinking about the internet as a way to deliver anything uh, like this. You know, we were still recording the tape. Uh, you know, CDs were king. Record companies were king. Records cost you know hundred thousand dollars more or more. Yeah. You made videos; they cost a hundred thousand dollars or more. You turned your record over to uh, the marketing and promotion. Part of part of the company, mm-hmm. and they did mm-hmm. they did that. They picked a radio single like "What's That," mm-hmm. you know, and then they they gave it to distribution. Right. What's that? Or, uh, <laughs> or to send out to record stores. What's that? You know, so so there there it, there's very little that that is the same. I mean, uh, you know, the p- players played music. That's the same, and this is all uh you know chief cook and bottle washer here you know sitting on the <laughs> living room floor uh with a with a, a laptop and a and a usb keyboard um <laughs> you know recording into logic and yeah. then, and then uh, asking friends to uh join in on that where uh bypassing studios completely uh going to their houses and getting you mentioned chris rodriguez earlier he went to his house he has a studio set up, you know, just a laptop set up. Right. He played and sang, sang you know, drummers, even even drummers have have uh, setups in their houses now. Right. Uh, you know, in a word, everything. Yeah, that, that's that, that's the truth. I mean, it's we, we've heard it uh, from other. Um guests in the past too that is just a totally different age and the whole the whole concept of the middleman is totally gone um so uh, you know we're going to talk about your new album in just a little bit but but first as a new guest of inside music cast we'd like our audience to to get acquainted or reacquainted with you and uh, your music background if, if you don't mind um i don't uh, mind at all yeah that, that's neat uh, our people like to really get into it a little bit and and uh, you know you're in new you were born in new orleans and then uh but you were raised in jersey and, and in Dallas, is that correct? Yes, that, that's all correct. Yeah. Um, so, so when you were, I take it that the most uh, you spent most of your time in, was it in Dallas uh, well, growing I, up? I musically kind of had my my start professionally in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's where that's where I met the people that ended up. You know, we moved to California and with a band, right. and uh, so. You know, I spent. I spent. Uh, I kind of grew up in New Jersey, but I but I spent you know, sort of my formative music years in Dallas. On your bios, we've read that you know it was like thirteen or fourteen that you actually started playing some some gigs. Is is yeah, that true? Oh yeah, I was playing in clubs at fourteen, and and uh, you know they 
And things were a little looser back then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so, you know, there weren't a lot of questions asked and, you know, I don't know. I, I really, it's really kind of hard to even imagine some of the things we did. Yeah. So you were, you were playing keyboards, piano back then or what, what, what did, uh... Yeah, you know, uh, well, you know, I had a, I think the first, well, I had a Doric organ when I was much younger. <laughs> But I mean, the first great instrument I had was a Fender Rhodes. Really? Okay. And uh, I played Fender Rhodes and for a long time, and then I got an Arp Odyssey. I got a clavinet, which was the thing that I loved the most. Sure, exactly. I had, I had two of them, and then I had, and I got an Arp Odyssey, and then kind of moved on to a a, a Yamaha uh, Electric Grand, and then had two Prophet Five synthesizers, and on and on and on we go. You know. Oh, cool. Hey, uh, Brent, what were you listening to during your early years, say, like in your teens? Who, whose sound on, on, say, radio, what, what groups were you really into that you were really sinking your teeth into? Well, I was really a cross between uh, the Beatles and Stevie Wonder. Okay. And then I, I was introduced to jazz and, like, Weather Report, yeah. Herbie Cock, Chick Corea, uh, and that whole kind of thing. And that really shook my tree a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. I, was, I still love Weather Report. And, um, but so you, you know, th- that's kind of the, the, the triangle there, the Beatles, Stevie Wonder and groups like Weather Report and, and Herbie Hancock. Yeah. Yeah. I, the Beatles doesn't surprise me. Of course, I, I hear a lot of that in your music, especially on your new album. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a funk strain in me. And in fact, um, a song that I, I ended up taking off the record cause it didn't quite fit a song called funked up. And it really, I mean, I've had a kind of a funk strain in my music, yeah, <laughs> the whole the whole time. Well, during I was we we're talking about your your early years, your teen years, and 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 what we were, you were listening to. But during this time, uh, you know, you were buddies with Larry Tag, who of course was your partner uh, when you formed Bourgeois Tag. And tell how did you first meet Larry? Because back in '75, when you were around, I guess I think you were about 18 years old at the time. You both had played in a band called Uncle Rainbow. Is that right? Well, actually. When the band Uncle Raymond was in Dallas, Larry Tag was not there. He was in Colorado. His, oh. He knew his brother, Eric Tag. Oh, Eric. Okay. He was a singer, songwriter, keyboard player. I knew him first. And, and, okay. And it wasn't until Uncle Rainbow moved to California that we made a change on bass. Uh-huh. And we called Larry Tag, and he moved to California to, to join the band. This okay. was in 1978, 77, 78. So... That's when I first met him. I, we hadn't met him. I hadn't met him until the day he joined our band. Um, <laughs> really? I certainly knew about him, uh, but he was off in Colorado playing in another band okay. for a long time, and, and it was his brother that I knew. Oh, it's funny. We've had uh, Rick. We've had yeah. Eric uh, as a guest on Inside Music Cast. Yeah, he's been a guest. And uh, I guess we never, we never really talked about you know Uncle Rainbow and how that sort of wor- no, morphed uh, into. No. That's interesting to fill in the, the cracks a little bit. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, members of Uncle Rainbow included uh, Richard Oates on vocals, uh, keyboardist and uh, vocalist John Lee Sanders. You had Danny Neal on guitars, and uh, I think it was George Lawrence on drums. And the, the band had, you know, a really high-energy jazz fusion funk sound and, and, a, and a solid Dallas following there in the late 70s. And tell me about your role in the band. Well, I was the keyboard player and, the, and kind of the second singer. Uh, I was still really young, and uh, but you know John Lee Sanders is on this record. <laughs> it's, is, uh, so, okay. is, so is George Lawrence. Yeah, uh, that's just kind of how far it's back to 
you know, into my whole musical life. I mean, it goes to, to get people on this record. John Sanders was kind of brought in. He was in a band called uh, Buster Brown. Oh, yeah. 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 Wow. Buster Brown was like the funkiest band ever. <laughs> yeah. And so we kind of got him from that band and George Lawrence, too. Uh, uh, you know, and it was just a kind of an amazing music time. And, and, you know, we would play anything. I mean, we would play Frank Zappa songs, Weather Report songs, <laughs> um, just, just anything challenging um, and, and, and our own originals. Um, and we used to, we did really, really well. We did so well, we moved out to California and, and in the Bay Area, and we did really, really well for another four years until Larry and I decided to go off and do our own thing. Well, you did. You know, talking about the San Francisco, the Bay Area work. I mean, obviously, you had a following, and it continued from from Dallas. It got bigger and bigger. And um, I mean, uh, she was. You were, I believe, about ready to record an album, weren't you? In development for something yeah, back then. Yes, we were. We we had uh, we'd gotten very close a couple of times. First, it was with uh, something called Reva Records, which had this one other artist called Johnny Cougar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, and and we made a record, and it just it, the, the it just didn't come out. And then we were very close again with Narda Michael Walden, uh, kind of uh, leading the way. We were very close to signing with David Geffen with Geffen Records right when it started. Jeez, wow! Um, and it you know kind of fell through at the last minute. Uh -huh. um, so we were knocking on the door. Yeah, um, and uh, it just never quite happened. But you uh, had recorded already. You had tracks already yeah, down. We had, a, we, we had a record in the can that Jeez. never came out. Um, and just an interesting little funny thing about that is that um, Uncle Rainbow had done a showcase for Geffen Records, um, uh, was for John Kaladner, okay, uh, who was kind of the A and R guru. Yeah, they had two at the time: John Kaladner and a, and a woman named Carol Childs. Okay, and they had to agree to sign something. Um, they had to both agree on it. So John Kaladner came to see us. Nard and Michael Walden set this up. We played a showcase for him. He loved the band, raved about it. He couldn't wait to bring Carol Childs to see us. We, so two weeks later or whatever, we set up exactly the same situation. Brought her in. She sat on the couch. We finished. She hated it. Oh. <laughs> hated it. And so, uh. so, you know, that was it. So fast forward couple of years Larry Tag and I have now done demos we we're ready to go out and shop the deal mm -hmm. so we got in touch uh, through I forget even who but somehow we ended up uh, we got our thing to Carol Childs she really liked us in fact she liked it so much she she brought flew us down to LA got us in her office told us how much she liked it and then she said well John Kaladner my partner has to agree with me on this. And it turned out that John Kaladner didn't like it. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so, you know, we, and, you know, that's kind of one of those things that, that uh, you can't make up. Oh, that's just amazing. It's, uh, it's so much work in the whole thing. And all of a sudden, you know, you find yourself there in, 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 in LA, and you're wondering the guy doesn't like it. So there you are. Same guy that liked the other band, and then she 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 turned that one down, and then she liked <laughs> this thing, and she turned that down. Um, you know, it all works for a reason. We, you know, it wasn't that much longer after that that we got signed to Island Records. So, yeah. and that was a great place for us. Oh yeah, 
definitely. So you're on the West Coast. So, you know, you told us how you hooked up with, with Larry. And um, so you guys formed the band and, um, you know, Lyle Workman, he joins and you have Michael Urbano on drums. And, uh, you know, what, what brought everything together? I mean, I mean, uh, when you and, uh, and Larry started looking for other members to complete the band, what were you out to do as, as a band? We had seen Lyle Workman when we played in Uncle Rainbow down in the in the South Bay in San Jose area. We had seen Lyle Workman many times at, at sort of a club across the street, mm-hmm. and we kind of knew that he was the guy we wanted. Um, and then you know in Sacramento we we had heard about this young kid Michael Urbano, and we auditioned him and just kind of before we got to the end of you know. I don't know. It was very short. We said, okay, you're the guy. So, <laughs> and so, you know, it was, I guess we had a very popular group. And so it was, wasn't difficult to get people to join our new group. Uh, you know, that's just kind of the way it goes. Yeah. I mean, you have something popular going on. Right. And, and not only that, but it was a very high, high EQ musician thing. Mm-hmm. So musicians liked the group. Yeah. Wasn't just popular. It was a, it was, a, it was popular among musicians because mm-hmm. we played a lot of really cool musician stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, so you know, when you start casting about for musicians, there you know there were a lot of hands up in the air. Well, you know that that first self titled uh, Bourgeois Tag album that was released oh. in '86 and yielded the single uh, Mutual Surrender. Uh, with a video that introduced you to uh, the MTV generation. And I just was curious, you know, were you pleased with how that album sounded and the way it came together and how the uh, band was introduced uh, to the world at that point? Well, we were at the time. I mean, we got exactly who we wanted to produce it, who was doing, uh, David Holman, who was doing some really crazy look-ahead kind of stuff. I mean, he had a sampler. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, a sampler. <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, it, it was, he was, but like, it's funny because that album, the, the sounds on that album, you know, kind of, they, they put you exactly in a place. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, they're dated to that moment. Right. Um, it, you know, it didn't feel like that way then, but it does now. So I could say we were very happy with the way it turned out then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say looking back on it, it's, very much uh, a sound and a of, you know of a time, mm-hmm. um, because everything at that very moment, you know, people were discovering how to line things up and get things timed out perfectly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. that was kind of a big deal, was to kind of align things and make sure your kick drum was lined up to the beat and everything was lined up, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't sound so good right now to me, especially because we were such a good band, like uh, such a good. We're such good players. Performers, yeah. The other guys, especially, were good players. And so they didn't need to be lined up like that, but that was just what was going on yeah, right. at the time. So you, it, to me, if I listen to that record, it sounds pretty stiff, and I know why. Because everything was just kind of fussed <laughs> over and moved and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and aligned up to the, to the grid. You just mentioned a second ago about, you know, um, a lot of the music was sampled. There was a lot of samples going on. You said it sounded dated, and especially now, obviously, when you listen back. But we're about to talk about, I'm kind of jumping ahead just a little bit, we're about to talk about the song uh, I Don't Mind at All. And and that song, when you listen to it today, still sounds so fresh. It, it could have been released, you know, last week because right. it, was all, it was all, you know, acoustic instrumentation, and it's just, it's not dated at all. You know, right. it's such exactly a beautiful piece. Right. I mean, 
And I think the album with Todd, in some ways, was a reaction to the first record. Yeah. Just kind of saying, you know, this is this is the kind of band. You know, this is let's just put it. This is the other side of this group. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we're players. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that song in particular, you know, sounds fresh and and organic and all. But there are other things on that record that are lined up too. Right. Yeah. It's just what you did. Well, you know, talking about I don't mind at all, and that came off of the album Yo Yo, which you said you uh, was produced by Todd Rundgren back in '87. And I was just curious about uh, your collaboration with Todd and how the two of you first met and how that all came together. Well. After our first record, we were managed by Bill Graham and Bill Graham Management in, in yep. San Francisco. And Todd lived in Sausalito at that time. He split his time between Sausalito and Woodstock. And, uh, you know, we were looking around and we were all Todd lovers anyway. Yeah. So, you know, we were at, we had, I guess we hit a certain successful level that we could, you know, look around and had a choice of various people. And as soon as Todd, Todd was on that list and, um, that that sort of ended the the conversation. I mean, when if he he was available, uh, you know, we wanted him, and so we met him. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Larry and I would go go over to his house in pre production with our demos. And you know, he anybody that knows anything about Todd knows that he's, you know, he's kind of blunt and he's kind of you know sarcastic, and he he has a he has a very his very own way of of. You know, talking to you, and yeah, he's got a little edge there. Yes, snarkiness. Yeah. He was snarky before snarky. <laughs> that, that's um, funny, yeah. Um, and so, you know, he, he liked our music a lot, and he never really said anything, anything about it. I mean, he never said anything about it, and that, you know, we can make the assumption that there wasn't anything that he wanted to say about it. But he really, really was kind of cruel about our lyrics. Interesting, um, and. We were very influenced at that time by the Talking Heads. Yeah. And, you know, that sort of observational lyric was like, look over there. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> There's a thing over there, you know. Right. It's dark. <laughs> um, and rather than speaking from the heart, you know, really uh, pouring your soul out. Yeah. And that's what Todd really wanted us to get to. Um. And so in his way, that's kind of what he did. And I, and I went home from one of those pre-production sessions after he had skewered our lyrics, and I wrote a song called Cry Like a Baby. Yeah, yeah. First line in the song is, what the hell do you want from me? <laughs> um, and it was completely about him, and I brought it back to him, and he loved it. Wow. It was just really kind of a, a pissed-off song at him. and. <laughs> You know, it's funny you bring somewhere. You know, it's funny you're bringing that up about Todd because I years ago I read this interview about with with Todd, and you know he came up with a, if I'm recalling correctly, it sort of aligns with what you're saying about what he's looking at with lyrics because I think the one of the interviewers had written that. Uh, so what do you look at uh, when you talk about writing music? And he says, I want dimension. I think he called it lyrical dimension. You know, and uh, he says that that's that's all I look for. Lyrics have to be good, and, and he focused in on that, that little bit, and that's sort of aligns with what you're saying that he was he was looking for a little bit more dimension of of your lyrics right well he said you know he, one of the things he said was you have you know making a record is like offering you 45 minutes on a psychology on a psychiatrist's couch mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, but you get to do it in public and 
I mean, I never let that go. I mean, that's one of those seminal moments in someone's life where I've never, I was never the same after that. I was always tried to speak from the heart. Yeah. I was uh, tried to pull something out of myself. Um, and, and, you know, that, that was, I really owed that to Todd. Hey guys, uh, let's take another break and check out a track from Brent's new album, Don't Look Back. And this is Deep Blue Sea. have several correspondents, but our correspondent down in Florida by the name of Scott Gross, he asks a question to you, and uh, it's really interesting. He says, he says the Yo-Yo album had other great tracks on it, including Cry Like a Baby, Out of My Mind, and Waiting for the Worm to Turn. 
Um, and then he goes on and says, nobody at Inside Music Ass remembers seeing the video for the last song, but we actually uh, just caught it on YouTube where everyone was jumping off a cliff. Yeah. <laughs> he says, can you explain that one? <laughs> well, you know, what's funny about that um, is that after we made I Don't Mind It All, we made a really great video, which was produced by, directed by David Fincher, by the way. Hmm. Who went on to do many, many greater things than that? But this was—he was a new director at that moment. He uh-huh. he, uh, he directed that video. You know, the song was a hit and everything. And and so, uh, the English part of our company, Island Records, uh, brought us over to England to do a tour, and they wanted to make a video uh, of an of a, a second video themselves. So, and they wanted to be waiting for the worm to turn. And so we we fine. So we showed up at this warehouse one day, and uh, they had it all set up. And you know, basically, uh, you know, in, in general, um, when you when you the last decision you make about your video is who who you choose to make it, um, who do you choose to direct it? Because after that, basically, you're just they say go over here and do this, you know, um, and you so. We showed up and we we made that video, uh, you know, which which we found amusing. But at that time, you know, you just got to figure it. You can't see half of what's going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> it's, all, it's all blue screen, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and then, you know, the song which they thought was going to be a single in England, I guess, wasn't. You know, or it didn't do anything. That that video never saw the light of day. It didn't see the light of day in in America, and we never got a copy of it. And it wow. just disappeared from our consciousness. I mean, you know, a vague memory of doing it, uh, you know, whatever ever happened to that. Hmm. And then two or three years ago or something, it shows up on YouTube. I don't <laughs> know who or why or how. Yeah. I know how the Universal who bought Island has sort of co-opted it and made it part of their, you know, Vivo or something. Uh-huh. But that's not how it showed up in the beginning. Somebody put it up there. None of us did. None of us had it. Wow. None of us I don't know who did it, but somebody, that's what happens on YouTube. And so I'm looking at this video as if for the first time. Um, yeah. Oh my God, look at that. You know, there's <laughs> people falling off a cliff. And you've you know? seriously never seen it before? No. I mean, I might have seen it. Wow. I might have seen it. Like, uh, you know, it didn't. It, I, I, I think I did see it like right after they finished it, uh-huh. which was 20 something years ago. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, but I didn't have a copy, I never saw it again. It had left my consciousness, you know, my consciousness. I didn't, and so I'm looking at it as if for the first time going, oh my God, there's people in wheelchairs. They're pushing (laughs) them off a cliff. There's, there's senior citizens diving off a cliff. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And and smiling about it, you know. Oh my gosh. So, but it's, uh, you know, (laughs) who knows? I mean, it really is, when you're, when you're in the hands of a video director, really, it's just their vision of something. And you just kind of, kind of laugh about it. Interesting. That's cool. Well, in 1990, you signed a solo deal and uh, recorded the self-titled uh, Brent Bourgeois, which was produced by a former guest of ours, uh, Danny Korchmar. And the project also included, you know, musical contributions from uh, Christine McVie and the, you know, the great Steve Jordan on drums and Randy Jackson on bass. And uh, I think you had that's Mickey, a rhythm section, right there. Yeah, no, <laughs> right, you're right, you're right. section. And you also had your uh, bourgeois tag bandmates, Lyle Workman and uh, Michael Urbano. So they, they obviously uh, respected your creative decision to to go solo. Well, it wasn't that smooth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in fact, in fact, 
in between those two things, uh-huh. the last uh, when I decided to leave, like right when, like within, I think it was within uh, less than a month, probably a couple of weeks after I told them, mm-hmm. Todd invited us all to play on his Nearly Human record. Oh, that's mm-hmm. right, that's right. That's right. Uh, in this live in the studio thing, where we spent you know days and days and days learning a song, and then we recorded in the evening, and uh, so. You know, I I had to go every day into the studio, you know, for eight, ten, twelve hours with these guys who I just told I was leaving the band. <laughs> oh boy! And, you know, it, it wasn't a it wasn't a happy thing. It wasn't it wasn't a thing where they were going, oh great, I wish you well. You know, right? Because I really broke up the band. I mean, I, I broke up a band that really shouldn't have been broken up. Um, it was doing well. It was on its way up, mm-hmm. and. Um, it was uh, there was a, there were a lot of reasons why I did it, but it, you know if you look at it right from their point of view, there wasn't a really a good reason. Uh, well, what, what was your reason, Brent? What what well, happened? I had gotten uh, clean and sober, and um, and I was really into introspective writing and writing about it and writing about that experience almost as a as therapy. I mean, okay. and so in that first album is really uh, what I would call a recovery album. You know? I see, I see. So they were very personal written songs. And when it came down to making our third record, it, it felt very odd to be putting these songs in a band context. And I had a lot of them. Yeah. And um, it felt very much like a solo thing. Okay. A solo expression, you know. And the other thing was I wasn't thrilled with the choice of producers who was uh, an Austrian guy named Peter Wolf, who had just done a series of 80s bands. Right, right. And we were kind of the next in the chain, you know. I see. And I felt like it was very, you know, it it wasn't, I didn't think it it looked good on us. Well, yeah, and and it sounds like you had uh, written a lot of personal uh, material that that you felt was was more apt for a solo project. Exactly, that, that is it. You know, that and the fact that we were, Working with this guy who was kind of treating us like a, like sort of we were a, a, the next thing in the factory. A machine, right? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, so th- it was those really those two things. I was just curious about writing. Has has writing always come easy to you? I and mean, when we listen to your body of work, you you seem to have kind of a an easy style of writing that's always very natural and un- unforced. But tell us about writing for you. Is it is it uh, is it a difficult thing for you to do? Or does it come pretty easy? You know. That's a that's a double question. It's uh, <laughs> when it's easy, yeah, it's really easy, right? And it's, it's like you don't know where it's coming from. It's like a channel, and it's just you know, like this record kind of poured out, and it was like, oh man, I could I could do this all the time, but then it, it, it I don't know where it comes from, and I don't know where it goes. You know, it yeah, it, it does tend to go away, and then you're sitting there going, how did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. where, where did that come from and where did it go? Right. I guess that, that, that brings up the idea of inspiration versus craft. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Um, because craft is always there. Craft is what you're left with when inspiration leaves. And so you're an artisan and you can always use your knowledge and your experience to write something. But it's not necessarily something that I would like. It might be something, or something I would do. Let's put it this way: something I would do myself. It might be something I can, I would write for someone else. 
which would be more craft oriented. Right, right. You know, an assignment um, to write a song for someone else that kind of sounds like this and has this sort of feel and has this sort of, you want it to be about this. And that's a craft. Yeah. Um, and I think I could do that all the time. The inspiration stuff is what comes and goes. Yeah. Uh, and, and Lord only knows where that comes from. You know, you met Charlie Peacock uh, in California. He's such a, you know, I've been into his music for, for many, many years. And he's such a creative mind, musical and non-musical too. And yes. um, when you crossed paths with him, did you did you think that you'd be, uh, I mean, he was, when you released your, your, your solo album, you know, Come Join the Living World, which is an amazing piece of work in 95. You know, you got the chance to, to work with him again because he had previously worked with him in, in other musical uh, projects too. Tell us how that all sort of came together and how well, you ended up working together on it. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, he was from Sacramento and we were in the same music scene together. Uh, he, he kind of fronted his own band and we had our own band. So we were never in a band together, although we did do, do this kind of one-off thing together. But we were always kind of playing together are playing in the same places together, playing just down the street from each other. We were good friends. And in fact, I worked on, he became a, a Christian and, and he, he was working out of this church in Sacramento. He made this record that Nigel Gray produced and I, I kind of was sort of the sidekick on that record, was in between Bourgeois Tag Records. And so we had a long working relationship and then he moved to Nashville and you know, became very uh, involved in the Christian music industry and did really well. And in fact, you know, I always had a very low opinion of that sound, of that Christian music. It always had a sound that bothered me. And it always seemed kind of insipid and light. And um, you always knew it when you heard it kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but he kind of changed that. He and a couple of other people. They, they, you know, he, he was doing stuff that was really good, really inventive. And, you know, he would send me stuff and, he kind of encouraged me when I kind of came around to that same uh, point of view. He, he he kind of encouraged me to take a look at Nashville and take a look at coming there and maybe making a record and also holding out the po the probability that I would be I would get some producing work. And it turned out that he was right about it all. I mean, um, he he kind of put his arm around me and, and I got a I got a record deal really quickly and. But I also started producing records. Uh, I, he had almost too much to do. So uh, I started producing right off the bat. And so uh, I made it. I moved my family to Nashville in 1994. Uh, I had a record, that record, Come Join the Living World, which he co-produced. Uh -huh. uh, but I made it a point that I was going to see which thing, which 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 road was more successful, uh, an artist road or a producer road? Because I yeah. really liked producing, and it turned out that producing was a thing that was really happening for me, um, and and it was a more stable environment at home, you know. And, and I had four kids, and it's just more of a thing that I and I really enjoyed it. And I I, I met this singer songwriter named Cindy Morgan, and, and and she came into my house with you know thirty songs, and and that really changed my because after that, I was a producer. Right. Yeah. Well, it just seems obvious that, you know, I mean, come join the living world. I remember when that came out. And 
it, it was just such a, a heavy album, and it was obvious, you know. Needless to say, the people in Nashville, this, the scene, they loved what they heard, and uh, and y- like you say, you were really busy producing and writing because you were working with at that time like Smitty, Michael W. Yeah. Smith, and Jars of yeah, Clay. I was his music director for a year, so you know, and I think. Uh, well, that's uh, Smitty gave uh, Chris Rodriguez his first yeah. break and Jackie Velasquez. Patrick and right, and and so you were working with these people who were who are major hitters in the CCM scene, and and uh, and and then you sort of began producing. So, but that was sort of bridged with your next step, which was to work uh, working in A and R for Word Records. Tell us about that transition, producing yeah. and working that's for Word. Really funny, I produced Cindy Morgan's record on Word, then I went out with uh, Michael W. Smith for the better part of a year uh, being his music director and writing songs with him. And when I came back and I was ready to produce Cindy Morgan's next record, Mm -hmm. I got a call from Word Records and, you know, they said, hey, we we want to talk to you you, about being the vice president of A&R at Word. And first of all, I thought they were kidding because I I just wasn't the record company type. And I was always very critical of what they had. I mean, I said to them, you know what, I don't even like what you guys do. Um, And the reply was, well, we're not real happy with what we're doing either. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and basically I think the challenge was you can stand outside and throw rocks at our window. Yeah. Or you can come in here and help us fix the thing, you know. Right. Um, You you know, because I was with a kind of in a, in a group of people, musicians that thought we were too cool for school, you know, and, and would, you know, didn't, didn't, we, we, you know, we were in it, but not of it or whatever, however that goes, yeah. and, you know, just really were highly critical of the, of a lot of that music. I mean, I was before I got there and Charlie was doing some good stuff and there were a few other people doing some good stuff, but really by and large, it was pretty tame and, and lame and about eight years behind the pop world and, you know, always trying to catch up by, by having their version of something. And so, you know, it was really kind of a challenge to say, okay, okay, uh, big shot, you know, uh, or big mouth. <laughs> you come in here and see how easy it is. You know? And so I, I know, and I accepted that challenge because it came with health benefits. Something yeah. Like yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was a new phenomenon for you, right? Yes. <laughs> It was very stable, and it was, and, and, came, and I think the kicker was, I, I didn't want to give up producing. And they said, "Well, you can produce anything you want here, right. as long as it's for us." You know, <laughs> so that was great. I mean, I didn't have to stop producing. That's and interesting. I, so I, you know, I found uh, Rachel, Rachel Lampa, um, uh, and I and Nicole C. Mullen, who I'd been on tour with Michael W. Smith when she was singing with with Michael W. Smith. And we got to be good friends. And Chris Rodriguez made a record for us. Right. For me. He was kind of like never made a record. The one guy, you know, was like, how come Chris Rodriguez never made a record? Yeah. Well, he, he did. <laughs> well, <Yeah>. he did. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the Rachel Lampa. My daughter, uh, Gigi, is, uh, she was, when, when Rachel Lampa came out, uh, my two daughters just totally ate that up. That was such a neat project. And uh, yeah. it, it was really different, you know, from uh, the typical CCM stuff that was coming out at the time, you know? Well, you know, the story about that was, you know, I didn't want to sign a singer. I, I mean, I was sort of, you know, made it clear that I was only interested in, in signing s- singer-songwriters. Um, 
because I didn't want to go out. I mean, we, we already had Point of Grace, which was a giant writer, like, you know, you get pitched a thousand songs, you know, and you just have to weed through song after song after song just to try to find something that they'll do. Um, and I didn't want to sign any more singers that didn't have their own material. But when I saw her as a almost 15-year-old, you know, everything went out the window because she was so good that I had to do it. But then I had to figure out a way to get material for her that was not the traditional way because um, I didn't want to get bombarded with, um, like, Point of Grace's sloppy seconds, you know, and that's what really happens. Um, and you get another thousand songs, and you've already heard them. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, so I decided to get together um, seven of my favorite um, singer songwriters. They had to be singers. They had to be good singers. Uh -huh. And and uh, and get them together and wrote this record specifically and exactly for Rachel Lampa. Um, we we rented a farmhouse out in Franklin. We went there every day. I put gear in everybody's rooms. And we just had a kind of a cross-pollinization. And we spent a month writing stuff like with people like Cindy Morgan and Chris Rodriguez and Chris Eaton and Michelle Toombs and Nicole Mullen and, you know, people that were singers. And if we, you know, we'd, we'd tailor songs and we'd say, you know, is that difficult to sing? You know, yes. Okay. Can you sing it? No. We'll bring her in. You know, can she, you know, and just every song had to have a moment. Every song had to be about her voice. And. Wow. So I thought it was, you know, I thought it was my finest moment as an A&R person. Wow, that's very, very cool. Um, Scott Gross, uh, our correspondent again, he has another question, and it goes like this. He says, one of our favorite projects you produced from this period was from the Streams album in 99, which included right. artists like Sixpence None of the Richer, John Anderson, Amy Grant, etc. He said, the track that brought me to this album was Michael McDonald and Moya Brennan yeah. over yeah. a gorgeous cover of Peter Gabriel's Don't Give Up I heard on the radio. Tell us about this project, could you please? Yeah, well, that... In a lot of in a lot of ways, that was like if I if I was going to make a record. I mean, that was kind of like my record that I didn't sing on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, kind of like Alan Parsons, I guess, did something like that. But um, we were trying to pair secular artists with Christian artists, and we did John Anderson with the band for him. Yeah, this is a whole other story. But I, I thought, don't it was a it was an album about healing. And so the song Don't Give Up was, was really a, a, a great song for that. Where we decided to switch the roles where, where the female sang the song and then Michael McDonald sort of was the voice of God. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do that again for us, please. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> and, you know, it was just kind of perfect. And... Um, you know, he lived in uh, in Nashville, and our kids went to the same school. And um, that's the funny thing about Nashville. I mean, it's that you know, you see people everywhere, and they all, you know, everybody's little kids' dads are, yeah. you know, famous people. <laughs> um, so you know, he he agreed to do it, and it's kind of funny. I mean, we were just laughing about that, but the end of that song, you know, I wanted him to do his thing, and. He's such a nice, humble guy that he's he in the is. studio, and I'm sitting at the board, and he's going, well, just just feed me lines, and I'll do them. And I'm going, feed you lines? Yeah, just tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. <laughs> you know, like, 
like improv stuff. Okay. So, so I'm going, so maybe you do like, you know, you mean, you know, you go, like that, yeah. You know, and so I found myself beating Michael McDonald a long time. That's ago. funny in itself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you almost can't not do him when when you're. You know, it's like it's on, it's like everybody's it's on everybody's lips. Yeah, right. they, they want to do they want to do Michael McDonald. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so it was great, and we went to Ireland uh, to do the strings on that, which was really, really wonderful. Because Moya was from was from uh, Dublin; she's the sister of Enya, and oh, and uh, so she had a great place there. She's very well known there, uh, and so she hosted us, and we used the Irish Film Orchestra, and uh, it was a beautiful experience. Wow. Hey, we've got another question from a, a correspondent, uh, uh, Scott Sheriff. He's from Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, he says, tell us about your work with Craig Hansen, who you worked with on uh, Cindy Morgan's Listen Project. He said, Cindy uh, walked away from music after some great work with Charlie and Out of the Gray. And he said, Craig uh, started NetCentral.net with Cy Fenton. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Craig walked away. It's funny. Yeah, he was. he got involved in that st- crazy internet thing that we're going what is he what's he <laughs> yeah he had these server he had these computers in his closet you know wow. was, they, they were called servers or something and <laughs> and you know he was convinced this internet thing was really going to take off uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's crazy he's, <laughs> he's nuts <laughs> really really gifted engineer and it was a sad day when he decided not to do it anymore i think he not only was uh, prescient about the internet, but he was also sort of, uh, uh, you know, saw the saw it coming the the end of the music thing before any of us, and and yeah. he got really tired of dealing with record companies. I just remember he worked on something else with with me, and I almost remember the day that he just was disgusted with the music industry wow. and about the way they paid people and about the, you know, just just. One thing after another, he yeah. just had he had enough of it, and he walked away. And he did this thing called Net Central, and then he and then he became uh, the, the 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 he ran Books a Million. Really? Yeah, that's right. Really? Yeah. Um, so you know he's he's done really well since since that. Um, I always thought he was very very gifted, uh, at, and you know just making things sound good. And he was a really funny guy too. He, there, you know, he was a, he would make you laugh from the minute you got to the studio to the end. So. Hey, let's talk about the new album a little bit. Don't look back. As we said at the beginning of the interview, that, uh, you know, it's been a while since you've uh, put out your own work. So it's a whole new world out there, as we explained a little earlier too, and we ta- started talking about um, that sort of success and marketing of this new project was totally in the hands of the of the artist now. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, concept now that with a, with a new album and how you're handling everything again well first of all i knew how to make a record i mean that that part even though i hadn't i mean even though i hadn't made my own record in a long time i'd made other records yeah. for other people and so you know making a record was was something i knew about and even though the, the way to do it has changed and i must sort of as a prelude to all this say that we talk a lot about the downside of of what's happening in the music business and the and the, how the internet has sort of destroyed 
you know, music as we know it and, and all of that technology. Uh, but if it wasn't for that very same technology, there's no way I would have ever been able to make this record. Um, yeah, technology has gotten to the point where I could sit with a laptop in my living room and a USB keyboard, you know, and make really good sounding music, yeah. which was, you know, for not, you know, for very, very little money, the price of the plugins and the price of, of logic, you know, right. And, and a, and a, and a USB microphone, you know, um, and everything has gotten so cheap and it's, and it's not just about it being cheap. It's about it being good. Oh yeah. Right. Uh, and you know, so the quality uh, has gotten to the point where it was conceivable to even do this. Five or ten years ago, I would have never been able to do this. Yeah. It would have cost way too much. Mm -hmm. um, so it, so it's, it would have been out of the question, basically, unless I had a record deal and I wasn't going to get that. So so I have to say that. But then, okay, so I this is the part I knew about. And I've heard a whole lot about the other part. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I had the good fortune to, to uh, first of all, I asked a good friend of mine in Nashville named Don Donahue, who was actually my A&R guy at Reunion Records for Come Join the Living World. He signed me. Uh, well, we've stayed friends, and he works at B Entertainment, which I worked for for a year uh, in, recently. And he kind of wanted to get involved, sort of as, as sort of a, you know, somebody that sort of helped me, helped me look at this and look at how to do it. He introduced me to two guys in Nashville, John, uh, Dave Jaworski, John Price, they're tech guys extraordinaire, and they did everything. I mean, they took this thing, and they made a website, they got an e-commerce store going. We had this idea of something called Kick Finisher, right. which is the opposite of Kickstarter. This was my, this was my big uh, contribution to this, was to say, you know what, I really don't want to do Kickstarter. I feel like there's Kickstarter fatigue out there. And that may or may not be true. I think it's a great thing. I think it's a really worthy idea, and a lot of people I know are doing it. But I just felt like I didn't want to ask people for money. But how about instead of you paying me to, for me to make a record, how about I pay you to sell my record? That's um, a great idea. You know, I think yeah. uh, I think Amway came up with it. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, or Avon or something. You know, yeah, it's something. like, okay, if you're a fan of mine, yep. why don't you help me get the word out? And I'll I'll give you incentives for doing it. If you I'll set we'll set up a you know, you'll get a, a code and you're in our website as so-and-so. And if, and if you sell, uh, uh, for every download you sell, you get a dollar. You know, if you sell, or you get 10%. If you sell a $25 thing, you get 250 you know. And so, you know, you're setting up this kind of army of people to go out and, and preach, you know, evangelize, <laughs> you know. Yep. Yep. And that's kind of, that's the idea. And then we got Julian Lennon involved. Uh, because of uh, you know because he's on the record and I got to know about his foundation White Feather, I came up with the idea that why don't we allow people the opportunity uh, to instead donate their commission to White Feather, which is bringing safe, clean drinking water to people in need in Africa, and they'll feel good about. It. And most people are doing that rather than taking commission, they feel good about you know, doing something good for someone. So they're taking their commission and they're donating to Julian Lennon's foundation. So it's working out really well. That's very cool. 
That's very cool. Yeah, I don't know anybody else is doing that right now, but we think it's got a future. Yeah, that seems unique, a unique approach. Yeah, well, you're talking about Julian Lennon. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you collaborated with him on uh, on a track on this album also. Could you please? Well, we knew each other uh, back in the day. Um, we Bourgeois Tag played a couple of shows with Julian, and he was a fan of the band. Um, and I got to know him then. Uh, but then we kind of lost touch. You know, I mean, as you do, you just kind of go on your life. And I never saw him for probably 20 years. Um, and then he pops up on Facebook. He's a very avid Facebooker, by the way. Yeah. And he starts popping up on my thing, liking stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, more than a little bit. Um, and so when I when I wrote that song, it really felt like it sounded like him. I mean, it sounded like something he could do. And I thought this would be really neat. I don't know whether he'd be into this or not, but so I just messaged him on Facebook, and he got right back to me. Just was like, "Sure, I'd love to." You know, I mean, I sent him a song, and he said, "I hear myself all over it." You know, and um, so then it was just a question of where, where, when when are you going to be anywhere near me and because um, he is a kind of peripatetic person. He's all over the world. He's yeah. He has no home, I don't think, right now. <laughs> Anywhere he's, his, his head lands at night. Interesting. So he was going to be in L.A. and at a certain time, and so we arranged to be there together, and um, and he did. He was he worked so hard on it. He, you know, he he wanted to get it right, and then he. And then he really has gone over the top to help me promote it. I mean, he's really, you know, he's doing good work out there, and he's really been very kind to me. Yeah. So let me go ahead and follow up on on, on what you're talking about here with Julian Brent. Uh, the, the track you're talking about is called The High Road. It's yeah. uh, it's acoustic, guitar-driven. It's really beautiful. Uh, when I first, uh, uh, you know, heard the track, it reminded me of just a really rich Jeff Lynne or Tom Petty type of track. And, and, and explain something for us. Does Julian do the background vocals? Me and Rick were talking about this. Or is he doing the lead vocals? How does that switch? Yeah. Well, first of all, he's singing the second verse. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. But on the chorus, it's funny. I'm singing the high one. He's singing the low one. And originally, the high one was the melody. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he sang the low one, it sort of became the melody. Um, and it, it switched in my mind. And if you didn't know which is which, I mean... Uh, I got, I kind of got used to the idea that the low one would become the melody. And Ross Hogarth, who engineered and co-produced that song, mm-hmm. you know, he kind of convinced me that Julian's part should be sort of more prominent. I mean, it's sort of like, hey, you know, he's on the record, you know, you might want to feature it. And he said, you know, as someone who's come to the song after the fact, I would... I would tend to think that the lower part's the melody, um, which was fine with me. So he's singing the lower part, and it really kind of has become the melody. If that makes any sense. It does. It does. It's a beautiful track. It works really nicely. Well, guys, let's pause for another moment, and uh, let's check out a track from Brent's new album, Don't Look Back. And this is a track called The High Road. Look what we've done to love again. 
Another great song is a, is a track called Psycho, which is, uh, 
I guess it's kind of an observation of social media and how people portray themselves. And uh, you recorded this with uh, the guys from Bourgeois Tag. And, and I was just curious, you know, getting back together with those guys again, was it like riding a bike after all these years or, <laughs> or were there some struggles or was it no, a, a no, nice it was, fit? It is. We, we did this reunion concert in 2008. Yeah. It was also with the band Uncle Rainbow. And uh, that was like riding a bike. Uh, you know, it was amazing with first day in, this, in, in, in a rehearsal room. Yeah. Uh, it was, we just picked it up and went, oh yeah, we know how to do this. Um, so, you know, going to the studio with them, we've, you know, we've all been friends and we've all been close ever since. So it's not like we had to reintroduce ourselves or anything. I mean, it's, you know, we've all kind of kept up with each other. Yeah. It was very, it was very easy. They're all, the two, Mike and Larry are also on the high road. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, like you say, you know, it seems as if a reintroduction uh, with, um, you know, with a lot of your your buddies. I mean, Charlie Peacock was on. You had collaborated with Todd Rundgren on "Poor Me," and you know, yeah. the music, the tracks themselves. Or how many of these were all brand new? Did you have any on the shelf that you wanted to revitalize a little bit, or was everything fresh, Brent? Well, the song that Charlie produced was really supposed to be the first song on my next record that I never did. All she ever wanted. Yeah, and but it was very different from how it ended up here. But I had that song sort of in my pocket for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there were a couple of other songs on the record that it had, there were sort of pieces of something that I had to go find, um, that I knew I had some good ideas somewhere. And in fact... I had to dust off the DAT player. Okay. <laughs> Get it out of the garage. <laughs> Plug it back in, man. Hope it worked. Wow. You know, and fine, and then scroll through acres of DAT tapes because I knew that there were a couple of things back there somewhere that had that, that, were, that, that I had always thought. You know what? I, I, I this is good. I just have to. These finish. are. These are old demos you're talking about, or old? Yeah, like something I started. Yeah, yeah, back in the '90s. Yeah, something I had started and and just you know filed for. I'm going to do this sometime. How did your dads hold up? Were they okay? Yeah, the well, uh, it's. I, I'll just say this: I'm glad I had two dad players because one of, <laughs> yeah. one of one's so good. I just asked that because I have DAT players and I've pulled some old DATs archived tapes from the 90s and sometimes they're spotty. You know, sometimes they drop in and out and that no, tape, did. tape didn't hold That's up very exactly well. Right. It was very spotty. And the other problem was I had to figure out how to get it onto my computer. Yeah. So I, and, and so I had to go to a place and bring them and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I don't really, I didn't have the technology available to, to get it onto my computer. Um, so, yeah, but most of this stuff really kind of came from just sitting down in the last six months or so and re relearning how to how to make music again on a computer yeah. and how to you know getting into logic and um, you know and, and learning how all that worked and programming and you know stuff like that so yeah you know um, I want to talk about really briefly real quickly about one track that uh, uh, two points I want to bring up the, the track is called don't look back really soulful organ bass a lot of b3 and nice and loose but number one it really doesn't move from e flat at all it just it's like straight the whole way through just drives and it totally works uh, I yeah. at, at first I thought holy cow where's he gonna go with this thing where's the transition and it, there never was a transition um, 
Yeah, it's true. That's exactly right. It just drove throughout the whole thing, it's and it riff, you know, it's like an old-fashioned riff song. Yeah, exactly. Just like war, war would do something like that, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, but or then I noticed Sly, another. You know, Sly would do something like that, or you know, just it. it there was, the, you know, that that one 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 riff groove. You know, um, it's a New. I'm from New Orleans, and it's kind of the Meters would do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that kind of stuff. And then you kind of have to build a song from that. You know, and I think the the heart of the song is the middle where the with the big horns and the Oh yeah. You know, and it, it kind of it branches out a bit there and um you know kind of quarterly and um but by the way the little detail into that is that in that middle section is kind of a cameo by uh, a singer named Michelle Toombs. Okay. Who I worked with who was an artist on, a, on Sparrow Records in in Nashville for many years, and it was just Charlie produced her. Charlie Peacock produced her, and I loved her voice so much. I used to use her all the time. On I, she's all over the Streams record, um, all over it because she does that beautiful, you know, tapestry of vocals. It's great, and, yeah. So, and it was just a girl after my heart. And I used to get <laughs> in trouble for using her because I was on a rival label. <laughs> Oh, I got gotcha. you. I used to use her without permission. Uh-oh. I would have <laughs> with permission. I would have never gotten to use her. Yeah. So, <laughs> I asked forgiveness <laughs> instead of permission. But anyway, so we, so I had this section in the middle of that song, and I just thought, this is, this is perfect for her. I, uh-huh. I want her to do her thing in here. So I contacted her. I hadn't talked to her in a long time, and I said, are you still able to do something like this? And she could do it in her home, of course. So I sent her the track, and I said, this is what I want. You know, I had a model, kind of. And she sent me back 48 tracks of vocals. Wow. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. It's for like a 16-bar thing. <laughs> you made your own record out of that. Yeah. It's a really cool thing she did. Wow. The second thing I noticed about Don't Look Back is that you, I, I caught a phrase. It's called, it's in the phrase is Big Man's Hat. Is that a reference? It, it's got to be a tip of the hat to, to Charlie Peacock for his infamous Big Man's Hat. Well, the, the rest of the, it's Peacock still be singing about a big man's hat. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting. That's um, really cool. Nice, nice treatment. <laughs> well. You got you to gotta drop a name every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, we're about ready to close right now, but I want to talk about one more track. Um, and the synth groove on um, Deep Blue Sea is really nice and heavy. You know, um, are you surprised that most of today's music uses all vintage pretty much sounds? I mean, we're basically back to Arps, like you said, Prophets, Rhodes, <laughs> Whirlies, and Moogs, you know? Um, and uh, and that was just a, just a neat track. I just wanted to let well, you, know. you know. That one and the one before it, uh, back of my hand are both yeah. examples of me learning how to use an arpeggiator. You know, I mean, I <laughs> logic, you know, and and being able, you know, it's kind of like, oh my god, this is fun, you know, um, because I kind of missed that era, and yeah. I kind of missed, you know, I, I I was a really good programmer, kind of uh, pre nineteen ninety three or four or something, and then I got into producing very much into the live music thing and orchestra and strings and live band. And if I needed any programming, I'd get somebody to do it. Yeah. Because I didn't, I just didn't do it. I mean, it just, it was something I really didn't have time to do. And, and so I got out of it. I did not. And then, and it kind of passed me by loops and, 
the loop era and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. when I'm sitting down again wanting to do this, it's I'm really having to relearn how to do this again. Yeah. And I just had such a good time with with arpeggios and, and figuring out how to do that and, and making them sound good. And that's that that song and, and back of my hand really came out of experimenting with that. And it really got to sound like something out of the nineties and I think I also think about the Will Farrell and, yeah. and you know doing doing that uh, Roxy at night at the Roxy was like, <laughs> yeah. at the same time you know it, it, what was the song they used to always use it was uh, it was uh, English oh yeah um, I can hear it in my head I don't know the name of it <laughs> yeah you know it was just that kind of thing you yeah. know. <laughs> well, it works. Congratulations on mastering the arpeggiator. <laughs> you know, some would say, okay, now that you know how to use it, you know, leave it alone. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't, don't ever touch it again. <laughs> well, we, we can't compliment you enough on, on this release, Brent. It's, it's fantastic. And I'm, um, I, I think it just came out here on June 2nd. Is that correct? You're correct. And uh, tell everyone where they can, they can get a copy of this if they want it. Well, there's only one place to get it right now, and that's at my at my website. There's a store in my website. It's www.brentbourgeois.com. Okay. And there's a store in there, and you, there's a lot of different kinds of packages. I mean, you can buy from a from a, just a download to a kind of a high quality download called Flack. Mm-hmm. To uh, you can buy a CD, a signed CD, and you get a download with it. Um, you can buy the family pack with me and my son. Um, oh, cool! You can buy, and then you, it kind of goes up from there. You can buy, you, you know, the the whole pack. You can get my record, my three solo records, uh, my two the two books I wrote, oh, cool. the family pet, um, some old American Girl dolls, and my my daughter owns the the, the ping pong table, an old <laughs> shoe, um, some gardening equipment. You know. <laughs> Really? Do you, <laughs> do, do you have a a, 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 weed, a weed whacker? I you need know one. what? That is in the that is in the the deluxe package. <laughs> I'm there. I'm there, baby. A weed whacker. Yeah. No, but uh, so there's all different kinds of things for people to look at, and um, you, there's samples of of uh, there's oh there's the director's cuts of everything. So that's cool. Um, I kind of talk through songs. There's yeah. a whole, there's whole versions of of every song that that's talk awesome. Through. That's great. Yeah. Before we go, I do want to uh, thank Inside Music Cast correspondent Scott Gross. He was uh, real instrumental in uh, in developing a lot of our questions for today, and we appreciate that, Scott. Yes, I, I know Scott, so that's yeah. good. Well, hey, Brent, thanks so much. Um, yeah, thank we you. We wish you the best in this album. We're going to get the word out for you, and um, and uh, we appreciate you spending so much time with us here today on Inside Music Cast. It's been my pleasure, guys. All right. Talk to you later, okay? Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Brent Bourgeois for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Unilon for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Once again I find myself In a place I don't understand The goddess of fate 
Train.